This is Dr. Rahi, and you're listening to The Treatment, your source for all things health, wellness, and beauty. If you like what you have heard in today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Rahi. Welcome to The Treatment. Today, I have Dr. Kwok, an aesthetics powerhouse in Southern California and the world. He has eight clinics in Southern California, has his own academy, the Aesthetic Immersion, and teaches aesthetics also for many of the companies that distribute aesthetic supplies, such as Mint, Threads, MERS, Galderma. Huge one, yep. Welcome. Thank Thank you you. for coming here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So am I. Hopefully you guys will learn something. (laughs) We want to learn everything. I'll try and pass off some knowledge. (laughs) Been doing this for a long time. I think. How long have you been doing this? Ooh, I got started in 2004. So the story is that I was actually my one of my friends that I knew from college hit me hit my roommate up in med school, and that was our last year of resident or last year of med school. And so where'd you go to med school? I went to Western University, the osteopathic school here in Southern California. And he wanted to do something. He was a PA and he wanted to do something in weight loss because that was huge in the 2000s. Um, and my my best friend who was in, um, he was my roommate in, in med school was like, I can't. He was going off to uh, the army because he had the army scholarships, blah, blah, blah. He said, remember Gideon? He's, he's doing family medicine. He'll be around. So he hit me up and he wanted to do some open a clinic. I was like, I can't do anything. You know, you're still in med school. You don't even know where the hell you're going. So um, fast forward, he ended up joining something in aesthetics during my first year of residency at Santa Monica. So I was doing family medicine at uh, UCLA Santa Monica. Uh, And so six months into it, I actually brought my other best friend who was a PA that I met at school. And so the two of them kind of worked at an office down in Orange County learning aesthetics, which back then was Botox, uh, I think Restylane had just come on the marketplace. They had played with a little bit of the collagens back then. Um, and then I think it was like Thermage and then IPLs and laser hair removal. I think that was the industry back in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2004, I finished my first year of residency, took my last step, passed my step, and they sat me down at the end of summer and said, we need to open something. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) I'm still in residency, can't do anything. And they convinced me. So four months later, we had opened our first doors. What was it called then? Skin Perfect. Skin Perfect. It's been Skin Perfect from day one. We came up with the name as a macaroni grill where you had the paper and you were creating names and drawing all over the place. And Came up with that name, and four months later, we opened our doors. The first one was in the Asian community. It was in Roland Heights. So it's still there, but they're my ex-partners now, and so they kept that location, and I kept the other ones and kept expanding from there. That's Not amazing. with the intention of expanding, honestly. When you entered, so <clears throat> I think everyone who enters med school has an idea of what they're going to do, and then it changes mm-hmm. along the way. Were you ever interested after that in practicing traditional family medicine? So when I first opened the office, the thought was, okay, I'll open on the side, something that I can do for myself because I have really bad skin. I mean, 
I didn't want to get to the point of using Accutane, but I tried everything. You know, you tried your retinase, you tried everything orally, blah, blah, blah. Nothing did you do really antibiotics? Worked. I did antibiotics. Nothing really worked. And so I get the Asian flush, and even though you could get some control over some of the acne, you could see all the different acne scars. Not that I had so much of the pitted stuff, um, but I get the Asian flush, and you could see every single thing that was there underneath. And so that was me probably teenage years all the way up into residency that never cleared and then so until I started working in this field that I cleared up my skin. So there is hope for everybody. <laughs> um, but it, it's something in the back of my mind that I thought about doing, but I didn't like the icky part of derm, which was the smelly VA, <laughs> the, the gangrenous blah, 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 and yeah. dealing with the scratchy, itchy stuff. I was like, I don't know about that. So. Um, family medicine was cool because you got to do everything, um, and it kept your day kind of a little busy. It's now different then, though, when I was in school. Nowadays, it's a lot of pill pushing, and it's, it's definitely changed. Medicine has changed a lot. So I'm very thankful that I jumped into this field. I thought, actually, when I finished residency, I actually applied to Kaiser, and I got two positions. I got the one in Inglewood, and I got one in Irvine. I was like, yay, I'm going to be in family medicine at Kaiser. Perfect. Don't need to really think about it. Your life is kind of set, right? It's golden handcuffs at Kaiser is what we talk about in, the, in, in medicine. It really is, because totally. they pay you decently well, they have great benefits, you work for 20, 30 years, and you get a good pension, and you're off doing whatever you want. The only thing is you can't do other things on you the side. And they are so strict with their contracts. <clears throat> so ultimately, I had to decide, and my partners at that time said, nope, you're going to come work with her, you're going to come work, you're going to give us a little sabbatical. So I started working, thinking that I'd at least do some urgent care, some part of what I was trained to do. Um, and fast forward now, I don't do any family medicine, have not touched family medicine in forever. So I don't regret it. I look back and I say it was kind of meant to be. Definitely so. meant to be. <laughs> the modern medicine is so much about pill pushing, honestly. I remember in residency, the biggest frustration for me was in clinic when my patients would come in and I would refill the prescriptions and it was just like this thick. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it would print like... It would print out the prescriptions. I remember giving them, like, books mm -hmm. to take home. Yeah, and then they expect us to know what kind of interactions that all these medications would go. And you're like, I don't have the time to actually look <laughs> all of them up and find out what kind of interactions and all of that stuff. So medicine has definitely, definitely changed. I mean, I came, actually, before I went to med school, I actually did, started, almost finished my uh, master's in public health, which was focused on health administration. So I actually liked the business side of things. And I wanted to actually get into that. Somehow I convinced myself to apply for med school when I got in. I only applied to three of them. So oh, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm supposed to go to med school. So I went that route. But health administration has always been on the back of my mind. And just watching how insurance has changed. And when we were in residency, just watching how they build. And how now family docs are made to be responsible for the patient's health in a sense where... I can't be responsible if you take your medication, if you're on a good diet, like, why is that my responsibility? And so you get deducted off of your pay and you don't hit your numbers if your patient's 
you know, blood pressure numbers are not within normal, if their diabetes numbers are not controlled and the hemoglobin C's are not controlled, I'm like, how is that responsibility of the doctor? I'm here to educate my patients and try to get them to buy into it, but I can't control what they consume and how they take their pills. A lot of times you would write the prescription, they wouldn't even, by the time you saw them the next time, they didn't even have time to go fill the prescription. And I would get docked for that. That's, yeah. that's where medicine to me has has completely changed where they're putting us responsible for the patient's health yeah. without the patient taking responsibility for their own health. Yeah. So I like this part of medicine because it's retail. So we're in it together. You're paying for me yeah. to guide you and want to get you results because you want to do this, not right. because you have to do it or not because you're forced to do it. It's something that you, it's your choice. Exactly. And I also feel that when patients care about their outward inevitably they're going to care about their inside too oh, for sure i mean half of our jobs is psychology and psychiatry i probably honestly i i'm fast with my treatments now where literally my ma's are like stop talking your next patient's two three patients away i'm like sorry this is part of my job it is really a lot of relationship building and I think that's the fun part about it. I think that's why I got into family medicine is because you want to build these relationships with your patients um, but you don't just, you don't have the time now because it is more retail than what we do you really really get to understand why they're doing these yep. things and how you're going to address them they don't need to maybe look perfect 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 or you're going to have the patients that want to look perfect some patients just want a little bit of something and they actually would pay you they're paying for their stuff, but they're really trying to pay you to actually see you because you're part of their little inner circle of friends in a sense. I yeah. get patients who tell me that. It's like, I just come to see you just because I want to talk to you. <laughs> Not because I really need stuff, but I just come to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, cool. And that's the fun part about it because they start telling you about their lives. They tell you the intimate things that are going on. Yep. Um, and I think that's rewarding. That's super rewarding as part of what we do in our field. You're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, I have developed stronger relationships in this field than when I did the traditional stuff. It was such a barrier between me and the patient. And it was so, it was such a rigid system that you I was miserable and they're miserable. It's just like a miserable hole. It is. It, it, it's totally miserable in medicine. And that's why concierge medicine came out of it for those patients who want that type of care um, and the doctors who are like, okay, I'm done with traditional insurance-based medicines and stuff like that. But fast forward to where we're at, our patients are getting benefits on top of that. That You know, when you feel good, your mental status and the way you hold yourself is so much more. I mean, just like studies with Botox, you know, just getting Botox in this area has shown in a lot of studies yeah. to de decrease major depressive orders by 50%. I mean just by getting Botox in this area. And it makes sense. You know, if you're not scowling every day, you don't feedback on your brain that you're mad and people actually approach you in a much happier way because you don't have a scowl. <laughs> How many of your patients come in and they're like, oh, my, pa my, my, my colleague keeps saying that I'm mad at them and I'm not mad. They just see this line and it looks like I'm mad. And so once they start to soften that up, it really changes the approach people have. Because we, we run off of for, for first impressions with people. And if you don't present yourself well, people respond in different ways and they approach you in different ways. And so in a sense, when I first got started, I was like, ah, oh, I'm making people vain. And, you know, there was this vanity aspect of it that kind of guilt trips you into like, why am I really doing this? But 
as you start doing this, you really do find that it's not about vanity. It's about building your patient's self-confidence. And if they have that self-confidence to do what they're meant to do, you're helping out society in general because you're making people happier that they're going to be more successful and add to society's benefits in that sense. That's so. so well put. That's so well put. But that's, I mean, it's an evolution when you, when you don't realize it. I mean, the little kids that come to see you and you really make a change, like acne patients, where you really can, can make that change, those are the ones that hit you hardest because they come in and their eyes literally, they don't focus on you, but mom is forcing them to get stuff <laughs> done. And by the time they're done and you really have changed their skin and they're really, really more confident about themselves, they're talking to you, they're engaging with you. They're like, I can't go to prom and stuff like that. Those are the things you're just like, oh. (laughs) But those are the things that really, really start to make you think, okay, this is why I do what I do. Because it's it's not about the vanity aspect. It really is about about helping people achieve what they're doing. You're helping people probably more than you would have if you chose to go the traditional route, because are you really helping in that, in that, in that, in that role? To me, in, in traditional medicine, <clears throat> you're giving patients pills to extend their life for what reasons? Because the, they don't have good quality of life. They don't have good quality. It's like those patients that are in the, in the ICU or in there and they're like this. I remember being residency and going in there, Mrs. Jones, how are you doing today? And they don't respond to you. They're just, laying there yeah. with no response whatsoever. And yet these, these kids are like, no, you have to do everything for my mom. It's like, that's not a quality of that's life. That's not a quality of life. But that's, that's also, I think that's just <clears throat> certain traditions and cultures that have a heart or just But it's a selfishness. It's, also- it's a selfishness to me. Yeah, it is. It's a selfishness. You yeah. don't want them to leave you. Right. So you're going to hold them hostage. Right, and their bodies. In their bodies. When they, you know, let let God do what it's meant to do. Let that destiny pass off as far as what that's going to happen. I mean, live life to its fullest. I mean, that's where I, my, my, my whole philosophy has slightly changed, especially with this whole COVID thing. Now, as I'm getting older, it's not just aesthetics. There is a whole part of me that is shifting some of my clinics to a little bit more wellness. So, we're going to dive into a little bit of what I call biohacking, where we're starting to do stem cells and IV drips and the more, you know, peptides, NADs, all exosomes. those sort of exosomes. Tell us about sure. exosomes. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> exosomes are, are, are out of your stem cells. And so they are the little packets of information where in, in science we used to think that they're, they were the the kind of the dumping grounds. They would actually just dump waste out into the bloodstream and things like that. We're now finding that these packets of of these vacuoles or these little, um, I guess you could say vacuoles or vesicles, um, actually are very potent. They have, um, they actually have mRNAs, they have genetic material, they have cytokines, interleukins, anti-inflammatories. They're a punched full pack of stuff that actually causes your cells to do things. So you can look at it as the, they are the messengers, messengers to cause your body to respond in a certain way. So analogy-wise is you say like your stem cells are like the CEOs and they're sending out all these emails, these text messages, and those messages alone will start to get things moving and start to get repair going on and all that stuff. And so that's where we're starting to take these exosomes 
and start to inject them back in the body. A lot of anti-inflammatory responses. So you're seeing a lot of studies in MS, ALS, <clears throat> all these autoimmune diseases that really, really can make some big differences and changes. We're still in the early stages of understanding what the dosages are, what all of the you know CD markers and how it's going to affect us in a sense. But you're seeing some big, big improvements. But we're we're doing it actually in our field, aesthetics. There are some companies that are making it topically, and I yeah. actually uh, just did a talk, or I recorded a talk for um, the Canadian Medical Expo, and they asked me to do a talk on exosomes. So I'm going to do a little bit of research on it. But from one of the companies that I've worked with, they they have studies where they're showing just topically once you've traumatized the skin, whether it's microneedling, microneedling RF, or some kind of fractional laser and you topically put it on there, you actually get uptick in your fibroblastic activity. So you're going to get just <clears throat> topically using it. They've shown studies where it's 600 times or sixfold the amount of fibroblastic activity of neocollagenesis. So you get 600% increase in neocollagenesis. You get 300% increase in elastin production. And you get an 80% improvement in wound closure at a faster rate. Wow. So, I mean, these are the things that we're looking at. There's over 50 growth factors that are in there. So now a lot of my patients, I'm actually not even using PRP. I'm actually just jumping into exosomes more topically. You're so ahead of the game. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm, I'm looking at it for selfish reasons. <laughs> so, that's, actually, that's actually what I do, too. Everything I do is for my, me. Basically. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's how we look at it. It's like, what can, what can I do to improve myself that will also benefit my patients in a sense? So that's kind of where my evolution and thinking has come down to now is as we get older, is like, what can I do to make sure that I live the best quality of life? Not that I need to extend it, but I'm going to live the best quality of life while I'm here. Right. Like living the best in the here and now. Yeah. I like that. That's, how I, that's my motto too. To go back and talk a little bit more about the trainings you took, how, and at what point did you realize I'm really good at this? <laughs> because there has to be that moment where you're like, this is, this you is know what? It, it's not, <laughs> it's still an evolution. I mean, I still don't think that I'm at the top of my game where I could be. Um, but you know what? I think I was lucky and blessed to have opened our clinic in the Asian community. So when we first started, the first clinic was in the Roland Heights area in, out here in Southern California, and it's a huge Asian population. So I got to learn off of that. And definitely as a partnership, you definitely vibe and get a lot of great ideas on how to do things. You know, we didn't start off, you know, back then it was um, still mailers and stuff like that. So you would get into the community and start doing those type of things. Um, there was no Instagram back then. There was, <laughs> I don't think there was in Facebook really back then. <laughs> was there so cell phones back then? We had cell phones. <laughs> I remember that. We do have cell phones. But, phone. oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean, ultimately, that's kind of where we got started. I mean, we got good at what we were doing. So by the time, actually, come to think of it, by the time I was in my third year of residency, I actually was speaking for Kutera. So we had done enough with Kutera that we were actually doing all, we actually bought two, three machines out of our one clinic. And we were doing back then Titan, which is infrared for skin tightening. And that was kind of the competitor to Thermosh. Um, and so ultimately 
they ended up having me speak for them. That was my first experience of speaking for a company. That was a shocker because you would go back then and it would be big conference halls because that's the way the industry was running. You would have circular tables. You would try and get people, get to know people. I was like, all right, I'll do one talk for you just to see how it is. I hate public speaking, like truly hate public speaking. Um, that time I was um, doing my rotation in an outpatient OBGYN. And they decided to put the event on at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. And normally they have circular tables. Everyone's sitting around the circular table and you're chit-chatting instead of paying too much attention. This time I walked in, they set up the, all the tables in long horizontal rows facing forward. I was so... Ultimately, I had to go through with it because I was the speaker for the evening. Come to find out the OBGYN that was actually following was actually one of the one of the attendees, which was very embarrassing that a resident was speaking about lasers in front of an attending. Wow. Yeah, that was I don't know if it was a good thing or whatever, but I remember blinking out through the whole thing. I mean, I did. I got through the talk, but you know when you when you're talking, when you're so nervous, and you just don't know what the hell you're yeah. doing. Yeah, that was me that time. So ultimately, that was my first experience in teaching. Ultimately, I've been always one to really try and understand what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and so a lot of times when we've grown our practice, is really bringing in practitioners who have the same mindset that really want to learn. So I've actually taught a lot of my practitioners on my own. So I've actually grown them, watched them grow, um, and really, really kind of harness them. That, you know, there are a lot of people out here that do a lot of trainings now that actually grew up in this imperfect system. That yes, <laughs> I think I've met some of your, your... Little protégés your, your that are out there. They've left us. <laughs> well, they've left us now. Aww. And they're on to doing their own things, which is... How does that things. feel? It's one of those hard things. I guess it's like being a parent and watching your kid go off to college and going, <laughs> don't leave, but I know you need to do it on your own and be successful on your own. I've trained you enough. So, you know, you hope that they, they're they thankful and grateful for what you've done for them, but you never know. I think the they are. Sure. <laughs> you never know. For sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, that's kind of where we've grown our business is really, really keeping it small, keeping intimate, really paying attention to culture. Um, we definitely, as we've grown now, we actually now have a corporate team. Um, and so we actually have a culture manager. We actually have a culture manager. So when they sit in and they get hired in within the first week or two weeks, they are sat down and talked about what our culture is all about, what we expect out of you, what you expect out of us. And kind of hopefully that's where we build that foundation. So a culture manager for within your... Within all the clinics. Because then there's also... I was thinking aesthetics and how different cultures also approach it. Do you do you train your... Ultimately, I mean, definitely that's a hard, hard one. I mean, definitely my Asian clinics are all Asians are going to be... They're going to... Most of my uh, people that work there are going to be Asian because... Asians only want to speak, speak Chinese. And, yeah. and so they already have that culture down a little bit more. It's still hard to train them a little bit because that culture clash is going to be different. But we try and enforce the vision of what we as a clinic want as far as an experience for our patients that walk in and leave and stuff like that. And so we try and hold our, 
you could say our company to a like that Nordstrom standard ish that we call out there in the <laughs> industry. So it, it's interesting, but I definitely think that it, it helps out um, because you you want to get people to buy into what you're doing and what you or what what they're being a part of and how they're going to be changing society in their sense. So it's you know it's kind of following like what Zappos does when they they have their employees and stuff like that. That those type of things when you start reading about business aspects of it and really understanding that a little bit more bringing culture in is actually very very important because you can get people who are really good at what they do but if they're not part of the culture they still may not fit as part of your team and there's going to be a team out there or they need to on their own create their own little clinic that is made for them and what they do they're going to vibe with their patients yep. I don't think I that, that, you know, I don't think you necessarily, we, we all in the industry feel that small industry because we all kind of know each other, but the patient population out there, well, there's huge amounts. I mean, we probably only scratched the surface of how many patients actually really need to do what we, we offer. can offer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't find that it's really a competition amongst us. Mm -hmm. I think building the awareness that everyone's going to get a decent, good result out there. I think that's what we as practitioners need to start being more mindful of instead of trying to knock each other off. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you 100%. Because, you know, just LA itself, the population is like 23 million? I know. Is it, what is it? 2021 know, population. Huge. But, um, and then there's a certain amount of practitioners. So I definitely believe in the whole... No one's a comp no one's competition. No, we have to work no together. No one should be competition. Yeah. I mean, there are patients that I probably wouldn't want to deal with that the next person down the I street agree. are going to be completely fine treating. And so, you know, it's always about that vibe that you get with your patients. And, you know, being able to say no is actually an okay thing in our industry. You know, when you don't say no, sometimes you're going to be led down the wrong way. And you're going to end up, you know, that there's always that patient you're like, I shouldn't have done that for. Ah. And it comes back to bite you in the yes, ass. that's happened to me. <laughs> I've learned over the years, but I still fall for it because yeah. we as practitioners are empathetic for that and we want to do the best for our patients. Yes. And so sometimes it does come back to bite you in the ass because at the end of the day, people will be themselves and not care about other yeah. people. <laughs> when do you say no to a patient? When do you say no to a patient? I think you say no to a patient when they're not on the right mindset of what your vibe is. If you're talking about this and they're like, no, I want this, this, this. And you're like, well, you really aren't a candidate for it, but they're adamant on it. You just kind of just have to tell them no. If they come in blazing guns and rude to your staff, that's probably not going to fit your culture. <laughs> you know, that person needs to move on somewhere else because that may be the person that you'll never satisfy. They're right. always going to be a complainer. They're always going to create more havoc for your staff. And maybe in your eyes, they'll be okay just because you're the practitioner, but you do still need to protect the other staff that are a vital part of your business from the front desk and receptionist all the way to your MAs, all the way back out. You know, if they're treating all of them rudely, well, why, why would you be, want them to be a part of your family? In right. a sense. So the, I think that you have to, you know, we try to protect our staff because we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that they're um, going to provide the best service, the best quality service um, for all of our patients. And if the patient isn't reciprocating that in any which way, 
then maybe not a good fit, you know? Right. I think patients who just don't listen to you, like, those are the ones you just need to get rid of. Or the ones that come in, like, they tell you exactly what they want without you letting them assess. I mean, I, I, there's a balance for that. I mean, I understand that patients are picky and there are certain things that they want and things like that. And I think if it fits with your aesthetic, it fits with where you regionally are like, you know what, that seems reasonable, then yeah. But if they're on this hoo-ha, I need this, 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 there are patients where I'll, I'll back off, like they still want to be with you. I'll back off and not suggest things to them. Yeah. You know, I've suggested enough for them that they focus on that lip. And you're like, you have more problems <laughs> being on your lip. So I'm not going to be injecting your lips anymore. So if you're going to come back, I will tell them that. Like, I'm not going to inject your lips anymore until you start working on other things. Like that? You know, and I am no problem being a practitioner, but you have to let me be a practitioner because you don't understand everything. A lot of times when you finally start putting that picture together, it's like an artist. They start painting, you're looking at them and like, what the hell are they painting? And when they finally put that last brush and then they put it up. Oh, there, oh there's one, one artist that I, we bought a painting for. He paints upside down. And so you're watching him paint and he paints it all. And you're just like, what the hell is he painting? And the last one, after he puts the last thing, he flips the painting upside down, and it was a picture of the Beatles. I was like, holy shit, that's kind of cool. Super cool. So What's sometimes, that name? I don't remember. <laughs> but you have a painting. I have a painting in one of my offices. <laughs> it was really, really cool, and that's kind of what we do. It's right. like we see different things based off our experience and what we can do for them. Right. And how we want to create that artistry because this is art. And it is art. patients need to understand this is art. As much as it is medicine and you're paying for it, this is artistry. And why everyone's, everyone that you go, every practitioner is going to be different because their artistry is different. It's kind of like makeup. You can buy all the makeup brands in the world. Then you can buy the best makeup. But if you don't know how to put it on, right. it does nothing for you. And so it, it is a truly an artistry and you have to find that person who has that, who speaks that same art language as you. Okay. Um, but a lot of patients just have to give the trust to the practitioner that they know what, what they're looking for. You know, you give them a, a general sense of what you're looking for, how you want to get rejuvenated and things like that. And it is a trust building aspect of it. You know, you start small. Okay. That worked well. Then you start moving on. That works well. And then finally they start to really trust you and start to let you do your thing. So I think practitioners have to learn to build that relationship and build that trust and understand how to build that. But then patients need to understand to trust the practitioners and be honest about what you're looking for and what you're trying to achieve. Don't say, I want my lip. And it's always about your lip or <laughs> this nasal labial fold. I only want you to feel my nasal labial fold. You guys have to be open that the aging process isn't just in one specific area, the whole face ages. And when we look at you, it's a whole face approach. It's whole not, face and body. Yeah, ages. it's not one specific area. And so they have to, patients have to kind of take that step back and say, okay, where are they coming from? Why are they talking to me about other areas? And make sure that it, it makes sense. If the practitioner can't explain why, then maybe it's not the right practitioner for them right. as well. Because they're just maybe selling it. I mean, at the end of the day, this is retail medicine. There's an ethical part of it that I'm not going to sell you things that you really, really don't need. Right. And that's but there are places that are unfortunately places. engage in like making this a whole sales thing. Yeah, there are definitely many places. And, you know, I, I'm not going to cap on the Groupon places because, I mean, often at the end of the day, a lot of small businesses need to start off in Groupon. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's a bad thing. You know, as a marketing business person, you have to 
build some roots into the industry and build some patient population. But if you're good about it, you eventually get out of that group on habit and now start to elevate yourself into that next level. It's, it's part of that business thing. And I, so I'm not going to cap and say that, Oh, all the group on businesses out there are horrible. It's not. And so if you trust it, you know, you get there, you buy it and you do it and you're like, okay, this place is reasonable. And they start to explain it properly. Um, and they're doing decent work. I, I wouldn't say that that could be a bad clinic. That could just be a practitioner in training because it takes years of experience. I mean, this is not something all overnight. I'm great at doing everything. It's taken years of experience. So, you know, you have to, you have to do your due diligence as far as understanding what practitioner you're picking. But I mean, ultimately I think you have to kind of also give, give it a chance, see what, what, their staff looks like for one thing <laughs> doesn't vibe with you because you've had patients who've gone to other places like yeah I didn't like the way their staff looked so then why did you get injected by them? <laughs> I mean that's the best this, way to tell right the artistry but, of right. what's going on behind the scenes I mean it's it's an example of what's going on I mean and don't take one person there's always going to be that one person in the office that's obsessive <laughs> and does too much what <laughs> is hmm, my office <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, there's going to be a balance of it when you look at everybody in the office. It is. I mean, you can't help it. There's always going to be that one person that just pushes up border for you. But if you can keep it within a reasonable thing, I think it's fine. I agree with that, too. But, I mean, it's, it's for the patient and the practitioner to figure each other out and find that relationship. Um, but yeah, building a business is hard. I mean, I think in this time and age, you know, I think a lot of people are using Instagram to build their businesses, which I think is fine, but I think you still need to go and build the deeper roots and really still do a little bit of marketing and, and different balances out there and different avenues. I'm not the greatest now because now I have a marketing team that does a lot of that and they, they literally are breaking down like website hits and how and where they're coming from, SEO searches. Dr. Kwok, so you're a really well-known educator in every area of aesthetics. I feel like every time I see a webinar, your face is on it. I'm like, what? You teaching for that company too? I play. I play around with a lot of things. I try whatever's newest. I mean, having been in the industry, you build relationships with a lot of sales yeah. And, you know, it, it's incestuous in the sales force. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I've known some of the salespeople for like 15 years. So, I mean... They're you, like family. They're like family and they'll tell you, hey, even though they work for a certain company, hey, you should check out that, you should check yes. out that. And so, I'm all for new technologies. I love new toys, except technology doesn't seem to like me. <laughs> my iPads always break on me without me touching them. <laughs> they That's literally funny. don't work. Um... But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the industry is always growing and I think, you know, people always want to get into this, right? Yes. That's always, that's the hardest thing. I guess a lot of questions that I get, I do a lot of teachings, um, try not to do too much speaking engagements, but personal trainings, I love that because you really see that light bulb on there. And so a lot of the DMs that I get and this is the reason why we created one of our schools, which is aesthetic immersion. So we do train a lot. And a lot of the companies train and their only restriction is that I can only teach on FDA approved areas. Right. And in the U.S. it's a very, very small percentage of the face that we really need to teach on. Like cheeks, nasal labia folds, 
and then this lower and face area. No one does knees don't leave your folds and, anymore, so... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very rare area to do, and so those are the basics of where we got all our FDA approvals, and so that's the reason why we created the aesthetic immersion, is because it was, it was knowing that there's a restrictive nature to training in this in this country. Other countries, they get full face approvals. Right. It's only in the U.S. where we have very limited to one specific area. And so my partner and I, she and I really having seen that, felt the need to create something that we could train on off-label areas and really kind of train people well. I mean, I think that a lot of people coming into this field just take a basic course and then they think they're advanced and you know i took a class on botox and they really don't understand the whys like why are you really injecting it what is the botox doing in the area what muscle are you hitting and what part of the muscle are you hitting are you hitting the insertion of the muscle are you hitting the origin of the muscle what are the two differences when you hit the two different parts of it? So when you understand the why, then you don't start to go, how much am I putting in there? How much am I putting in there? Like it should never be as an artist, how much you're going to put. It's what are you seeing? What is that change that's happening? So my recommendation for people getting into this field is it's a completely new skill set. Mm -hmm. Doctors, PAs and PEs, nurses that have a career already in other fields of medicine, you have to realize that you will not get paid the same amount jumping into this field because yeah. you have zero skill sets. Zero. Zero. Yeah. Like you may be the best ICU nurse, but you have no skill sets when it comes to injecting Botox and doing filler and doing a laser. So what makes you think I'm going to pay you your same salary in this field? And so my recommendation for those that really want to jump into this field as not necessarily a career change, but as a hobby, or maybe eventually a career change, is that they actually look at that first couple of years as a training process. Like a like fellowship. A That's what they call a it. Residency, a residency. Honestly. Even worse than a fellowship. <laughs> it really is residency because you're not going to get experience and you're not going to get good at things until you get hands-on. I could listen to all the didactics in the world and until you're at our levels where we've been doing it for a while, you can envision, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. Okay, I can, now I can replicate it on my own. I don't need you to handhold me through that. But a person jumping into this field, they need that handholding. They need to know what it feels like to go into dermis, what it goes into subcutaneous, how to actually approach into the deeper fat pattern, preperiosteal spaces and stuff like that. And so they need a lot more handholding. And so my recommendation is to really take a good course. We created a course and we really spent 12, 15 hours on a didactic understanding. I mean, it's three hours on just Botox. <laughs> alone and then it's another four hours on you know other stuff and so it's a very intensive but we ended up calling it foundations of advanced aesthetics because everyone's saying they took one quick two-hour course and they're like i'm advanced so to get out of that habit we just call it a foundation of advanced because we really need them to understand the basics we really need them to understand and build a good foundation of education for them so taking a course that is really going to enhance them is, is important. Um, the other thing that we like about our school and why we did it is because they come in and we actually set it up that they get one-on-one one, one -on -one hands-on training with us for an hour. They get, their, they get their products, they get their toxins, and we're literally watching them. But besides us watching them, we actually have 4K cameras videotaping them. They are hooked up to a mic, and they're, both of us are talking, and 
you know, I mean, I don't remember if you go back to when you were in residency and someone's teaching how to do a central line, you're just doing it and you're just really not understanding what you're doing. You're just like, okay, I'm just doing it. And you kind of forget it until you really practice it and you start to understand, okay, where am I going? Where's that vein artery nerve? <laughs> you're kind of finding that pathway and you really get it. So we decided to actually record all of the students so they actually get a recording of the whole day. Not only their injections, but all the other participants that were there that day. So they can understand, okay, I was injecting this cheek. Why did they make me change direction? Why did they make me change to this plane? What were we trying to achieve? Because a lot of those little nuances slip your mind because you're so nervous about just holding a needle that you're really not paying attention to and grasping the really gist of the whole process of injecting. So we kind of like and develop our training program based off of things that we thought were lacking in the industry. And so having undergone through, you know, when we went to residency, they would record us doing this, like a, uh, an interview with a patient when you're doing that. And then they would go over and be like, you missed this. You should have done this. You should have approached them this way. You know, when we record it, you get to see what we miss. Yes, we were nervous. And that's normal when you're starting to do that. But as you start to review it, now you're going to get more comfortable about what changes you need to make, how you actually should have approached it, what approach you should have made in that aspect of it. So that's kind of where we decided to do that. So taking good foundation course is important. Yep. And then from there, practice, practice, practice. You know, if you're in the industry, if you're a beginning and you really, really are gung-ho about doing it, find a practice that's willing to take you, even if you didn't pay zero money an intern like keep your regular job because you're making good money there and find someone who's willing to pull you under their wing and actually let you follow let you do some things and stuff like that even if it's for free if you can get paid minimum beginning salary hey you're good but as i said look at it as like an internship year yeah because until you can get that experience and really start to really get in there is where you're really really going to really excel Exactly. And then once you're good at it, then you can command whatever you want. And at then that you can charge whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a sacrifice in the beginning. It's what we do with doctors all day long. I, I sacrifice my life two, for this. We, get two, we got paid $2 an hour when we were in residency because we were working 80, 100 hours mm-hmm. and being paid $40,000 $40, a year. Yeah. I, I had mean, so much debt when I was in residency. Yeah. It was awful. It is. And so you have to go back to that. And, you know, yes, some of the education... Put your mouth where your put put money where your mouth is. If you really are interested, spend the time taking some good courses. You don't take all the courses, but you kind of ask around which are good courses, and you really do spend the time taking at least one course per year. And as you get even better at it, then you start doing the conferences. I think conferences are something that newbies don't necessarily need to go to. You may go to it early on to get the hype and the vibe. Yeah, but. When you go to these conferences, a lot of times they're speaking a little bit above yeah. where the beginner levels yeah. are. Maybe after a year of being in the industry, you go to a conference and stuff like that. But if you want to go to a conference just to get the vibe, it's cool. The, the conferences are fun because they're inspiring. Yes. And they're just fun. Yes, they're just fun. So, but you're not going to learn gonna very learn much. The way you learn it's more for people like you and me who have been in the industry and we can take the concepts that they're presenting and now apply and change up a little bit of what we do. We take some pearls home and we do things. But as far as a newbie, going to a conference, I think it's a waste. Yeah. It's there to kind of go, oh, I, I'm 
I've been following that person. I want to see that person, take a picture. I think that's fine. Uh, you can look at it as those type of things, but really, truly learning from an educational standpoint, it's not. And I think even, you know, it scares people because if you go to conferences now, every other talk is vascular occlusion, vascular occlusion. And I was having a talk with my partner uh, for our school and I was saying, you know what, as much as we do talk about it, we need to slowly back off or at least clarify to people that you have to stop obsessing about vascular occlusions because it can happen it's like people die in the hospital that happens we can't freak out about it we have to understand what we can do there's a code blue you can manage it if you can bring them back to life great you did a great job otherwise they were unfortunately already going to die um you know vascular occlusions are of course avoidable for most of the time if you're not a bad injector um, you know, you aspirate, you know where your blood vessels are, you're going to, for the most part, not. I mean, 16 years I've been doing this, I've had one vascular occlusion. It doesn't happen. And I used to use radius on noses all day long. I've done thousands of noses with radius because that's what it was done back when I was beginning. That gives me anxiety. I know. But, you know, you, because of where I come from and the experiences that I have, I can say with confidence vascular occlusions don't happen as much. Even the blindness cases, when they talk about these blindness cases, if you really look at the studies, 40, 50, 60 in the four or five year period, and most of them being in Asia because they do majority a lot more injections in the areas that are a little bit more dangerous. And there's always, Asians are a little bit more sketchy. <laughs> I won't admit you that. that <laughs> they are. Um, you have not seen the Asian communities in this area, in these areas and what they can really uh, how aggressive they get and how sketchy they can get. Um, but there are sketchinesses in the industry and you have to watch out for that. Yeah. But ultimately, like, fast conclusions don't happen as often. I right. feel people need to take take a back seat to it. And, you know, my, my analogy is we've scared people so much to saying, like, you're driving a car, you're going to get in an accident. And now they're going... And focusing on not getting to an accident instead of paying attention to what they really need to do. Right. And those are the people that are actually probably going to get in an accident. Right. Because they're so scared that they actually forget what they're really doing and really understanding the anatomy, where they understand whether they're putting your product. So I really feel as though, you know, as much as education is out there, take everything with a grain of salt. Make sure you think about it logically. Does it happen that often? You know, take those things into account but you know in my in my book to get into this field spend the time spend the money you know put put your money put your money where your mouth is you know make a little bit less do that so that you get that right educational process we do this as doctors right you know by the time you're a doctor you're like finally i can <laughs> finally make a little bit of money to pay off some of those debts but there's the light at the end of the tunnel and then for them to go oh wait i want to go do this oh, I do that again you know, you're back at the bottom of the rung, but ultimately that's the price it. you pay to get into a field that you are going to be happier with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it pays off at the end of the it day. Does. It really does if you mm -hmm. hone your craft and you really do it. So yeah. that would be my recommendation. That's a great recommendation. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. So I learned welcome. so much. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and there's still, there's still so much to learn. But two final questions yes. before we wrap up. Okay. First one is, what's your favorite procedure to do on patients? Right now it's threads. Me too. <laughs> right now it is threads. I, I think it makes 
a huge, huge difference um, because your patients understand what you're going to get done with threads. I mean, I still love fillers, but to do the right amount of fillers for my patients to get them the results, a lot of them can't afford to do it at that um, at that level because most of my patients, if I had the choice, I would inject six to ten syringes on each one of them. If I had my if right. I had my option, yes. If I could do that, perfect. I would love to do fillers, um, but I think threads right now can definitely build that gap that they get this nice huge lifting effect that there's like oh that looks really good and really natural so really natural right now it's threads <laughs> i won't say anything about where it may change in the next year or two years but right now currently it's threads i do have a lot of fun doing those me too and what's the favorite procedure you like receiving I don't think I have a favorite procedure I like receiving. What? Nobody has. Nobody likes to get poked. But, huh? I mean, the biggest one I would probably say that I consistently do is the Hollywood peel. It's the Q switched uh, 1064 with the carbon. Um, that's the one that cleared my skin up of the acne, the acne scarring, changed the texture, the pores. Overall, it's a commitment. I think anybody in patients. You guys have to understand that anything you do to skin is going to take time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like working out. You're not going to overnight have the best body <laughs> just because you did one workout. <laughs> Same thing with your skin. It is something that takes time to change and it will change as long as you're consistent with it. But that's, I think, where the American mentality is, oh, I can do the filler, I can do the Botox, and it's going to make an instant change right away, and they're happy with that. And they keep getting sucked into that cycle that that's what they need, that's what they need. And a lot of times, it's really that they've done enough of that, they need to now work on the skin quality. Right. And so I think that, you know, I think that for me, I do love that laser. It's one of... My favorite ones. I had one from 10 years ago when I first got started and I never gave it up. And it was, it's still working, but definitely has dwindled down as far as its power. So I just got the most upgraded version of it recently. And so I have both machines, but it's pretty much kind of the same machine, just an upgraded version of it. But nice. still my favorite. So you're at the office all day injecting and being injected? Yes. For the most part. <laughs> That's great. For the most part. My Wednesdays are my free days to play because we work the latest and all of my staff know that we're there to play. So I said, if you guys want, play days after work on Wednesdays. I like that. So and you guys just inject each other? We inject each other and we, we do lasers on each other. Ideas. And stuff like great yeah. ideas. I feel like I have so many ideas for my practice now. Thank you. You're very welcome. My play pleasure. Day. We're going to set a play day. <laughs> Always. Yeah. That's how you train them to get better at right. it. Especially because they're all afraid of injecting me. I'm like, if you can inject me, you should be injecting your patient very easily. <laughs> Who wants to inject their boss, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I like that. But Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Of course. I, I, I loved it. My pleasure. All right. See you guys next time. Bye, guys.